Hi guys, Paul from the innovation community here. Today I'm with Jim Howard who has a, a wide array of digital and uh, reference data expertise at the BBC, William Hill and the Government Digital Service just to name a couple. Uh, great to have you with us Jim. Uh, good morning, good to meet you. Tell me a bit about yourself in a few words, just a, an executive summary. Uh, well, I uh... I love being outdoors and I love a lot of hiking and kayaking. Uh, Work-wise, uh, I worked for the BBC for a good few years um, and I went freelance in about 2012, 2013. And in that time, I've worked for a number of different companies, specifically looking at uh, content and reference data in relation to how we build really good products. Um, and that's taken on some very interesting projects, some interesting journeys. Um, yeah, and so just at this point in time, just, just reviewing that and, and as part of the whole um, COVID process, sort of seeing where companies need to go to next. You mentioned you're uh, big on, on the outdoors. Do you have a favourite country? Uh, not specifically. I mean, favourite areas. I love, uh, I love going to the Alps. So I've done a lot of hiking in Switzerland and France uh, and then also in the Dolomites. I think one of the most memorable trips was when we went to Greenland and did some uh, hiking and wild camping over there. Uh, it was the summertime. Uh, it was still cold at in the evenings in the overnight, but uh, amazing scenery and just very, very, very remote. Uh, no, we didn't see any polar bears. Yes, we did have to take a gun with us. Wow. And um, yeah, pretty, pretty interesting personal life. In terms of your uh, professional career, where did you really start to cut your teeth with data? Where did that really start? Uh, well, I did a lot of work uh, at the BBC with sport, um, and of course, sport is a, has integral uh, data, uh, tables, fixtures, results, etc. And after a few years, uh, we were working with probably two separate systems to do with sports data and to do with content. And in about 29, 2010, we had the opportunity to to revisit that and say, how do we start joining the dots a little bit more between those different systems, those different concepts. And, and it was, a, I wouldn't say a slow journey, but it was more a case of once started digging into that a little bit more about how we wanted to tag the uh, content that we were creating and then how we actually had results. That's when I started thinking, okay, we've got a load of, um, concepts here that we could utilize a lot more and consistently across the whole uh, editorial organization and then also how we could move towards um, managing that in a little bit easier way for the journalists because you find that multiple different systems all had their own different um, vocabularies basically they were using you think well actually how do you join those together and so I think the first one we did was about Winter Olympics and then we moved into the World Cup in about 2010 um, and the scale just got bigger and bigger um, and then we learned a lot of lessons, went through and of course then that pushed on to uh, the Olympics in 2012 uh, and I believe, although I haven't worked for BBC for a while now, that there's, that's the sort of basis of the system they're using now, dynamic publishing with a lot of annotation of content. That's and after, the, after the BBC then, it was um, working with some other different organizations and getting them to have a look a little bit more about that reference data area and think how that can 
help them extend uh, their products and actually some of the processes underneath the hood. Super interesting stuff. And, you know, what interests you about working in this space then? I think, to be honest with you, initially it came from a sense of frustration because, uh, you know, working on the UX and design side of things, you're sort of limited by the scope of what your um, content management system could do and the sort of various templates associated with that. But then you'd always have a, a load of user research that came back saying, well, actually what the journey that the user would like is X or they'd like more content around this particular team or theme. Um, and once you got into a stage of, um, it was just mostly manual management, you think, well, we need to move to something that's a lot more automated. And that meant a lot more tagging, which then meant you needed a lot more consistency on the terms and stuff you would use for that tagging. So once you got to a stage of saying, well, actually, we've got this massive corpus of um, uh, terms, that made the whole thing a lot easier to manage. And I'll be honest with you, like working in the sport domain uh, quite a lot, that's, that's quite tightly defined. You know, you, there's not really that many abstract terms you get around sports. You know, there's whatever it is, you know, 90 clubs in football league and, you know, X amount of terms that you could think up around um, rugby union or Formula One. It, it's very sort of defined, you know, these are the locations, these are the players, these are the teams, this is the competition. So once you build up that domain model, it makes it quite easy, it's probably not the right word at this point in time, but you do sort of think, well, actually, this gives me lots of possibilities for the types of products and journeys that I would like to create for the user. And just going back to your time at the BBC, you mentioned that you, you implemented a kind of standardized vocabulary. What are some of the other major successes that you've achieved over your career? Uh, so sometimes that's, I think we're very lucky when there's at the B that because of the different business and challenges around things like the Olympics coming up, it was very much a case of momentum that they wanted to move in that direction. Um, in other organizations, when you go to, you sort of, uh, because I do lots of uh, freelance and contract work, sometimes you just sort of have to say, well, actually, if I just move it, you know, half an inch in this direction, that can be seen as an achievement. Or you say, actually, this is all part of a whole major transformation project. And actually, we're going to rebuild it from the ground up. And it's just really picking and choosing um, the right approach to the right organization. I think... From, from a personal perspective, you know, if if six months later you speak to somebody who worked on the project and they went, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that was great. I really sort of take that into heart and I'm going to be using that as part of that. That is, that is, a, that is a big achievement, basically. And tell me about a time that you affected change in a major organization and, and some of the challenges that came, came with that. Um, so... I think working at uh, some really interesting work with the government digital service recently, um, working with some of their colleagues at the Crown Commercial Service. And that's all part of a major transformation. This is to do with procurement in government. Um, when you start breaking it down, it's very much a case of it's still a publishing process and there are still particular um, bits of content that you need as part of the legal process and there are particular um, terms that are associated with that. So there's lots of businesses involved. So you think, well, actually, how do I get to a stage of saying, 
Uh, yes, this is the business that we're talking about. So how do you do verification around all those different terms? And it's very difficult because um, you know, it's not just about case how we can use uh, company's house data, but how do we use multiple different sources of data to say, yes, that is that company identification. Uh, and then how do you move through a publishing process that meets the different guidelines? And then how do you join the dots basically between um, what the user wants and then what the business is trying to achieve? And, and that's quite a lot of dot joining between different types of data and different types of terminology through that process. Yeah. Why? That, that was really, that was really, sorry, that was really interesting purely because you're dealing with internal systems that have to do with uh, funding or to do with finance plus then an editorial almost an editorialized system saying well we need this types of these bits of content uh, plus some search plus then that whole verification side so it's quite a lot of um, breaking it down and then joining the dots yeah i think what's super interesting as, as we spoke about before when i was away with the reserves we had the uh, it was actually quite technolo technology technologically advanced and it's not really something you'd associate with government like a government digital service that doesn't that's, that's that doesn't really line up with the, the stereotype of the, the government bureaucracy but actually the systems that we had in place to support the nhs it sounds like the systems that you were implementing to to help the, the legal system was actually pretty pretty uh, revolutionary so yes i mean you know there's lots of there's lots of stuff that's been uh you know, most organizations get to a stage of where they've been building stuff up over, over the years. And there's either legacy technology in place and legacy systems. And sometimes from a product perspective, uh, and I'm not, going to, I'm not going to say what technology people should be using, but from a product perspective, it just makes it quite difficult at times to move things forward and actually uh, address those business issues and the user issues because of all that legacy stuff behind the scenes. So if you just sort of ignore actually what the technology is and say, well, what do we actually need to do to meet those needs and how do we propagate that data through the system? It starts to make it a little bit more uh, clear for the business about what you need to do from an end-to-end -end perspective. And you're never going to be able to achieve everything and some stuff is going to be a little bit more uh, make do and mend initially, but it does when you start being able to join up the sort of technical roadmaps and then what you want to achieve as a product, that's when you start making some nice big changes. And when you're with these organizations, uh, how do you engage and communicate with um, both senior leadership team, but also a team members? Let's say the senior leadership team first. Lots of cups of tea. <laughs> um, yeah. So sometimes it is one-to-one uh, -one relationships that work in a much better way and you sort of have to adapt your style depending upon the organization um, and yeah there's quite a lot of influencing and quite a lot of one-to-one -one conversations you know obviously there's there's presentations and then you're then getting to a stage saying how do i how do i pair the whole thing backwards to try and make it as as simple a proposition as possible because you know people are short at times sometimes they don't understand all the technicalities around this but as long as you then getting back to these are the business issues we're trying to address or and these are how we're going to do it step by step that is the core thing and, and then understanding the language that people want to uh, to use in particular areas i mean I, I speak to speak to technical architects slightly differently than i do with editors on the on a newspaper for example um 
but it's, it's trying to understand both of those sides of the conversation and try and join, well, a phrase I've used far too often already is trying to, how do you join the dots between those things and make it quite a clear proposition as possible. You know, there's always going to be problems. There's always going to be issues. But as long as you're sort of heading in the right direction, that sort of, uh, that helps. Absolutely. So a very, uh, very uh, customized leadership style. Well, yeah, I mean, is that sort of the different sort of jobs taken on, depending upon what the business wants to do, you know, there's not like a one size fits all approach. You do have to sort of adapt and change and say, well, actually as part of this brief, as part of this project, these are the core areas that I need doing and these are the people I need to deal with. Uh, and in other areas, it could be something completely different, but you know, the core, when you sort of pair it back, that's just how you communicate those things and change your style. But really you sort of come back to the core basics of like, okay, what's the business trying to achieve uh, and what does the user want? But especially if it's around, um, you know, sport and business stuff, you're then saying, well, actually these are the key enablers that are going to make us achieve those things. And once you get an understanding of what those things are underpinning the product proposition, it makes it easier to leverage it and move it forward. And in organizations as a whole, where do you see the biggest opportunity for improvement? So there's always uh, lots of conversations around, you know, we need to build this new front end. We need to create this great new experience. What I found is that working with different organizations is that all the stuff that's hidden away underneath the hood is the bit that causes the most amount of problem at the moment for people that are trying to build products like myself. So, you know, there are, are legacy systems there. There are, you know, multiple different vocabularies that work in different systems. So actually trying to then do that end-to-end -end process is, is becomes more difficult. And I think there's quite a lot of opportunities for um, companies, organizations to start saving some money and also simplify their tech stack if they get those vocabularies right uh, and, and get it in a, a condition that actually helps enable their business a lot easier. Uh, like multiple different systems. Like say for, I'll, I'll take sport as an example because it's dead, dead easy in comparison to some other ones. So say, for example, um, you know, we're doing Premier League football. So I've got a competition. I've got 20 different teams. I've got all the players that play for those teams. If I am um, editorial, I'm going to write some content. I'm going to write some content around... Manchester United versus Southampton. That was on last night. So I already know all of that information around that particular match. Almost everything that I'm going to write about uh, and where I want to place it as part of my uh, CMS and then also where I'm going to be putting it, um, you know, as part of the website as where it gets published to. But then also you think, well, I need to put some adverts around that as well. So I still want to be able to sell against either uh, Premier League as a concept or with the teams as a concept or even individual players as a concept. And so it's then, you know, you want the advertising team then to be using the same vocabulary as your editorial team, which then allows your data science team then to be able to report back specifically around that particular concept, you know, 
Manchester United are the most popular team on our site, we can make X amount of money, etc. So then if you take that as a sort of uh, concept a bit further, you say, well, actually, are our accounting systems, can we report against that in the right way behind the scenes? Um, can we use the fixture list a little bit more imaginative way in order to build concepts or experiences around? So when I was working at one organization, the, we used the fixture list to create all the pages within the CMS that the editorial team would need for a particular match because every match is a unique identifier. So you say, okay, I need, we write eight pieces of content around a match normally. So it'll be like a, a match preview, um, you know, live content, uh, full match reports, maybe some analysis pieces, a Q&A, something like that. So, okay, well, we can create all of those automatically from the fixture list when it gets published. Therefore, the journalist doesn't have to do any work about creating all that stuff yeah. manually within the CMS. So it's like, how do, we, how do we leverage all of that information and data a bit more imaginatively than, than it's just a case of, okay, I'm sorry, junior journalist person, you're going to have to set up 20 different pages basically this afternoon. It's like, well, we know all the tags. We know all of the fixtures. So we should be doing all that stuff automatically. And if you take that to a logical extent, then, then well, actually, what are our external suppliers doing? How are they tagging their information, their data? How do we make our processes a lot easier so that they know that from four different external suppliers, they're all writing about Liverpool Football Club, for example. And think, well, once I've got that as a concept and the business buys into that, then well, actually, how did I move that into other areas as well? So, you know, business data or fashion concepts or or whatever, to try and make those processes a lot easier within an organization. Yeah, just, just tying it back into your original analogy of looking under the hood and then actually seeing there's a whole plethora of, uh, of opportunities or problems, depending on whether you're a pessimist or an optimist. Yeah, well, I think lots of I think opportunities because when you sort of look at workflows, which is quite a, a challenging area anyway, there's quite, still quite a lot of manual processes there, you know, cutting and paste off different you know, wire processes and then people pulling that together in a Google Doc or a Word Doc and then that being transferred into a CMS, etc. cetera. I think, well, actually, there's still some really interesting opportunities here to try and mix up how you author a piece of content, how content is tagged, uh, and then how stuff comes into an organisation to try and make that a bit of a smoother process, basically interesting stuff and uh, last question for the main body what was the biggest mistake you made during your career do you think um i think thinking everybody was enthusiastic as enthusiastic as me around the subject basically and the biggest lesson was it needs a lot of work at times uh and no matter how enthused you are about oh, this is a really interesting approach and it gives us huge amounts of possibility. That process of change, and that comes down to change management, really. Um, it's like, well, you know, what, what are you going to be, techniques you're going to be using as part of your, um, you know, influencing and change management style? You know, I, I probably <laughs> missed out of that quite a lot when I was younger as I was too enthusiastic about stuff. I think, of course, this is the brilliant way to do it. We must do it like this. Uh, and it takes sometimes, takes quite a long time to get people uh, moving in that direction. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you ever received? 
Um, I think shape it up and do something a bit different. And I think after working at BBC for many years, not not you get stale. I, I went off to work for a charity for uh, after I left the BBC for a few months in Central America, and that was great because it then gave me uh, the opportunity to do something completely different uh, and think about things in a very different way. No digital, no technology, um, you know, hiking across Nicaragua, rescuing turtles on the beach. Uh, and let's give you a different way to, um, to think about things. And then when I came back, it was very much a case of, well, okay, uh, it sort of renewed me with that enthusiasm that I could actually do lots of different things. And that's really why I went freelance slash doing some contracting work because it was trying to keep that level of uh, freshness and stuff and uh, exciting opportunities to do things. And, and if you could leave that project with some uh, enthusiasm within that team or at least a the direction, then, then that, was, that was brilliant, basically, moving that way. But um, I think that was the most thing is that it shaped it up basically every now and then. Did you find that you missed um, that kind of work when you were in South America? Um, I think when, well, actually, when I came back again, and uh, it's, a, it's a, a great guy that I used to work with called Ian Davis, who's now uh, head of product at iPlayer at the BBC, and he gave me my first opportunity doing some freelance work, and that sort of rekindled my enthusiasm for, for getting back involved again. And it was great saying that the um, you know, different skills that I developed when I was at the Beeb would then be very applicable to these things. And in fact, we were a little further ahead, even at that point in time, than some of the other companies. And so you could bring all of that knowledge and experience to bear. And once that level, um, I realized that, that sort of stoked my enthusiasm about how I could get involved and actually help and uh, work with different companies and try and think about those different approaches. So now that you're, you're freelance, uh, I assume you've been working from home the whole time, right? I've been working at home quite a lot. Yeah. What's your, you, you must be more of an expert than the, uh, the coronavirus uh, home workers. What's your top working from home tip? Uh, get out and do some walking and some cycling. Uh, get away from the desk. Don't get um, too tired to it. It's very easy to spend... Uh, you know, eight hours basically on Zoom or on your laptop. But, uh, you know, even when you're in the office, you'd have that hour commute into work, for example, or you'd have your lunch break and then you'd get out again. Uh, it's very easy to sort of stroll from bed to breakfast to laptop to then, oh my God, it's tea time. But make sure you do break it up and make sure you get out of the flat house wherever you are basically in order to uh, give your brain a rest. Do you, have you incorporated some sort of daily routine then over the time you've been freelancing? Yeah, so, um, yes, I do tend to, I, li <clears throat> I live in southwest London, so quite near Richmond Park, so that's always great for, for hiking, uh, well, hiking, walking, basically, and make sure I get out and for an hour or two, basically, to, to break up. But yeah, so, yeah, yeah, that tends to happen early evening, go out for a walk and uh, enjoy the fresh air, basically, rather than get in, but but yeah, that's, that's basically uh, my key advice. Oh, and lots of cups of tea. <laughs> but what are you curious about in the space right now? You know, you're, you're freelancing and working with a lot of different companies. Yeah, so it was about joining the 
joining, you know, so there's still quite a lot of opportunities about joining those dots and trying to think of how those different systems can fit together. I, I did attend uh, an ODI uh, workshop before the lockdown started and it talked quite a lot around open data, which I think is, you know, fantastic opportunity for different organizations to think about, you know, how they publish stuff that people can interrogate. But I think there's something that they said as part of that, that they've been working on data schemas with different organizations so that systems behind the scenes could talk to each other a lot easier. And that started again, me thinking about things in a slightly different way, thinking, well, you know, once you start looking at that stuff below the waterline, as you're saying, you know, they are sort of built all slightly differently, but there's no consistent language between those systems. And that's what's caused some of the difficulty. So I was quite enthused about some of that work they were doing to sort of say, well, actually, if we had a, a consistent schema around these type of systems, then that would make the whole thing a lot easier and make it easier for users to be able to, I think the example they had was around uh, booking squash court time or tennis court time on, um, recreation ground systems and because they're all built slightly differently or come from different companies there's no consistency so you can't jump from one borough to the next because everybody's bought a different system so that started me thinking about okay so once we if we sort of take some of that uh, idea to internal systems within organizations it sort of links a bit with that I'm not really sure I want to quote Jeff Bezos, but it was that, that whole thing around, um, what do they call it? The, uh, the API manifesto that uh, he published quite a few years ago, which was about, you know, build all your uh, systems with APIs and make your data available for other internal teams. I'm quoting this very badly at this point in time. Um, and that's where it started thinking, well, actually, there's still quite a lot of work that could be done to actually make those things a lot easier, how you balance up your uh, user experience and user needs versus how the business systems underneath can help support that. Uh, and usually that's where you get your big blockers basically, but really what you'd want to say, well, from end to end, we do have a, an idea, a concept of what this, and we can propagate that data all the way through from the user all the way to the financial reporting. And once you've got to that stage, you know, you're actually, getting to a stage where your product is very successful. And you mentioned just now that you didn't really want to quote Jeff Bezos. Uh, who is your favorite thought leader or author or influencer? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat on this one a little bit and just talk about, and just say about people that um, I've worked with really rather than some overarching figure. So I think when, uh, so when I was at the BBC, um, from a product side, it would be, you know, people like uh, Chris Russell, who um, is now working in governments, just sort of how approach products in a particular way, and Nick Newman. Um, and then from a technical side of things, a guy called uh, Jem Rayfield and Paul Wilton. Um, and then we work quite a lot on the data side of stuff. Um, and that's, I learned a hell of a lot working with them, basically, about how we move towards the World Cup. Um, and then in different organizations you sort of pick up different ways of working or, and different approaches. So a guy called Adrian Peltzer as well. I worked with a couple of times in different, and he's a technical architect. And again, um, 
taught me uh, taught me a lot about how lean processes as well as just sort of agile things, and then how to uh, approach particular projects. So that sort of that ability to be able to absorb and learn, and people willing to actually teach me stuff as well, uh, I, I find brilliant. Basically, I love I love working with uh, teams like that. And final question: What advice would you give for aspiring leaders in data? Yeah, don't get too concerned about the actual technology. Um, it's more a case of, you know, again, I would say about focus on the user and the business needs, what you need to achieve, but then also think about how, how best to join the dots between those different things. You know, as I said at the very beginning, some of those things are almost going to be impossible to achieve, but there's no reason why you shouldn't understand how those things work. Uh, and really goes back to what is, what does your business actually do? And I think that's the bit where sometimes it can get a little bit lost amongst the sort of desperate uh, arms race of technology and things and apps, etc. But if you pull it back, say, well, actually, what do we do? We are, we are the right content or we, uh, you know, leverage data in a particular way. Uh, you know, what is your USP and stuff around those things? I'll just hark back to the um, sports stuff I was talking before after you know, doing some work with William Hill and then also with media organizations, you have to sort of think about what is your USP around this because everybody can buy the fixture list. There is, there is no secrets here basically, but also you don't own the fixture list. Uh, that's owned by either the Premier League or FIFA or UEFA or whoever. Um, all you're doing is how do you leverage that the best way and what is your content strategy or promotional strategy around something that you don't own. And that's, I think that just getting that concept right is, is what creates, you know, loyalty, a good product from your users, etc. Just understanding that differentiation between something that you own and something that you're leveraging as part of the product. Great advice there from Jim Howard. Thanks so much for joining us, Jim. Thank you very much. Thank you.